I think the court got it all wrong. They misstate and distort how affirmative action works, and they misstate and distort the current reality of racism. They've been trying to get this result for decades. The facts have not changed. The society has not changed, except becoming more diverse. What has changed is who's on the court. Who's next? I think a lot of people, including Harvard's president, immediately focused on was the Supreme Court statement that you can cannot consider race in admissions, but students can still write about their race in their essays, and that admissions officers can certainly consider the story that students are telling. They, they might think, well, isn't that what affirmative action was doing anyway? That's Jason Bourne. Um, and in fact, he was aware of the case, but only when it was argued at the Supreme Court because the web design and design community. And, but that affirmative action is okay with this majority. The Supreme Court is political and they're coming for your husbands, your wife, and your children. Anissa, hide your kids, hide your wife, and hide your husband because they're raping everybody out here. Listen, Linda. Linda, listen, Be listen. If the Supreme Court is political, it's almost always one way. When conservatives are on the court, they largely rule in favor of the Constitution. When liberals are in charge, they largely rule in favor of political ideology. Think that's not true? Remember back when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still alive and said this? I thought Roe v. Wade was an easy case, and the Supreme Court could have held that most extreme law unconstitutional and put down its pen. I mean, you don't talk unless you're alive, but she barely looks alive. But instead of the court actually trying to rule in favor of what the Constitution says, of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg just told us there in no uncertain terms that the court did what they wanted to do and just legalized all forms of abortion with the stroke of a pen. It's almost like the left destroys everything it touches. We're here in the once great city of San Francisco. We came in here and we saw people defecating on the street. Sure, I get it. The left and the right have disagreements, and the right gets things wrong, too. But the dividing line in America today is not between left and right. It's between those who believe the truth and those who are freaking crazy. Your definition is that a woman is someone who is female. That's why it's important that we get back to some semblance of right and wrong in the midst of it all. So today, we'll look at three Supreme Court rulings that are supposedly radical and creating what will be one of the biggest threats to democracy in the present. But if the left had their way, the president would become a king and be able to rule with an iron fist. Today, we'll look at the affirmative action ruling and show why racializing the country is bad for all of us. We'll look at Biden's eviction moratorium and how the Supreme Court was forced to bail out businesses by saving them from these unlawful penalties and how one Christian stood up to the LGBTQ mafia and won her right as a business owner to associate with whoever she wants to. We'll talk about that and more today on IndieThinker. Welcome to the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Now, I know, based upon our current administration, depression and anxiety are incredibly easy to come by, but I want to pull you out of the muck and the mire today by letting you know that you don't have to rely upon our political class to actually be fiscally responsible. You can take your own financial matters into your own hands 
if you're starting a business or maybe you just need help with bookkeeping, accounting, maybe you need help with staffing, but our business professionals over at Anchor can help you with that. These guys are not only our sponsors, but they're also advocates in your corner to try to help you thrive and give you the business strategies that you need to curb the devastating effects of inflation. But to see everything that they can do to put legs underneath your vision, you need to go to anchor.biz. But you got to spell the name right. That's A-N-C-U-R.B-I-Z, where Devan and his team can help you get ahead of the game and thrive even in difficult times. But again, got to go to Anchor. That's A-N-C-U-R dot B-I-Z. And when you do so, let them know that Andy Thinker sent you. Last week, the Supreme Court ruled in a landmark case that affirmative action would no longer be lawful for college admissions. So colleges and universities all over the United States can no longer use race as a means for admitting people into colleges and universities. Now, not only does it violate civil rights law, which is predicated upon the idea of colorblindness to institute affirmative action, it's also important to notice that By and large, we keep on trying to cure something that happened in the past and still happens to this day, let's be honest about that, by by poisoning ourselves with the very poison that we're trying to fight. So again, civil rights law is colorblind by and large and says you can't hire or you can't admit people into college based upon the color of their skin. And you also can't remedy something by using that thing. So in other words, two wrongs don't make a right. But of course, this comes as a great surprise to the amoralist and to the anti-Christians over at MSNBC, and let's face it, many on social media and in the legacy media writ large. So I want to show you Joy Reid, who has the worst flex of all time, telling us that if it weren't for affirmative action, she would not have the ability to produce a very low-rated unthoughtful show on a regular basis on MSNBC because affirmative action is the reason that she has this low-rated show in the first place. So here's her arguing for affirmative action by telling us that she is one of the reasons why affirmative action works somehow. Here's that. Well, let me just be clear. I got into Harvard only because of affirmative action. I went to a school no one had ever heard of in Denver, Colorado, in a small suburb. I didn't go to Exeter or Andover. I didn't have college test prep. I just happened to be really nerdy and smart and have really good grades and good SAT scores. But someone came to Denver, Colorado to look for me. A Harvard recruiter flew to Denver and I met up with her at the Village Inn restaurant and did a pre-interview to get to to pull me into Harvard. I wasn't I was pulled in and the the schools like Harvard and Yale that I got into affirmatively. And it was literally not saying we're going to take an unqualified person and put them in Harvard. We're going to take a very qualified person who we would never know existed and put them in Harvard. That's how I got there. That's how Katanji got there. That's how Justice Jackson, I should say. Justice Jackson got there. It's how Clarence Thomas got there. But the minute I arrived from my majority black little town, Montbello in Denver, to Harvard, the first like week or two that I was in class, my presence was questioned by white people. I was in this big conference class Hmm. where some white students stood up and said, those students, the black students, they're only here because of affirmative action. It became a huge argument that we all ended up having. This was freshman year. I had never had my academic credentials questioned. I had never had anyone question whether I was intelligent until I got to Harvard. And it was a defining uh, point of my experience there. It's why I really was one of the many reasons I was miserable there my freshman year. You felt completely out of place that people keep telling you you shouldn't be here. And yet some of the people I went to school with 
were far less smart than me or the other right. black folk there. Right. They got in because their daddy and their granddaddy. I right. went to school with somebody whose name was on one of the buildings. <laughs> now, as brilliant as that ringing endorsement of affirmative action was, I know you're thinking to yourself, does that mean if we had overturned affirmative action long ago, we would not have to tolerate this ridiculous, inane show? And the answer to that is, unfortunately, you probably would still have somebody like Joy Reid um, on air giving us her sound advice and anti-Christian rhetoric. Now, how do we know that? Well, let me respond to this video uh, point by point to the best of my ability. First of all, to Joy Reid, I just have to say, how do you know you're an affirmative action pick? Are we actually to believe that somebody traveled all the way to speak to you and then said, hey, we're bringing you into this college just simply based upon your race? I mean, she tells us in the whole interview, she, she kind of lets the cat out of the bag. She drops the mask. She was a great student. And they put her in because they loved her ACT scores, not because of the color of her skin. So how in the world does she know in the first place that she is actually an affirmative action pick other than the fact that she's just guessing that? You don't, you don't get admitted based upon affirmative action in that they say, hey, affirmative action pick, come on through. Needless to say, um, she makes a point about that I think is well-founded about nepotism and favoritism in these schools that are, let's face it, traditionally white, the Ivy League, uh, just simply because um, black students um, are, uh, there is, it takes time for those students that are black to, um, who didn't have parents and grandparents that went to college to finally work their way into the university system. So there is a history of white-dominated kind of culture at these universities, and black people have not had the time, unless they're at an H, uh, HBC, uh, they have not had the time to kind of build up the reputation, the money, and the uh, kind of impact in these in the Ivy League schools uh, that that other white people have, and so there is a bit of disenfranchisement there. But but here's the reality: nepotism and favoritism does exist in these places. But it's a lie to suggest that all that does is simply impact black people because it impacts me just as it impacts Joy Reid or the black person. And it is wrong. So me coming from a middle class family who didn't have the luxury of historic wealth passed down to me in any sizable fashion and didn't have a legacy that was passed down to me from my ancestors at the universities that I went to, I had to simply get in on my own merit, just as I suspect Joy Reid, if she was really honest, would say she had to do herself. In fact, it's actually demoralizing to suggest something else. Because she just admitted that it is demoralizing, it is wrong for people to be admitted simply because they get some kind of favor given to them, which is exactly what affirmative action is. And so the point here, again, is that two wrongs don't make a right, that to overturn this historic kind of nepotism that takes place in schools for, with people who have historic wealth, the way to, overdo, to, to undo that is just to simply admit people based upon the color of their skin. Well, then that's an injustice to other people who didn't have the privilege that you just named. And so you're only giving privileges now to people of color and to people who have historic wealth. And there's a whole group of people that maybe you want, might want to consider outside of that, which just simply means if we get back to a meritocratic system, maybe better for all of us. The point three, 
Joy Reid says that it is ignorant to suggest that affirmative action means accepting underqualified students, except the only reason she can say that is that she is actually ignorant to the fact that affirmative action, by and large, has helped some, sure, but by and large, it has been something that has disenfranchised students who actually made it into schools that they wouldn't have normally made it into just simply based upon their scores. For instance, I bring you to the person who has actually studied this well and also happens to be a black intellectual, Thomas Sowell. In his book on the subject of affirmative action, he says a couple of things. He makes a couple of arguments. First of all, he says this, that, that affirmative action encourages non-preferred groups to redesignate themselves as members of that preferred group. Can anybody say Elizabeth Warren, Jesse Smollett, and Rachel Dolezal? Of course, Jesse Smollett is a black man, but he was making himself a victim of MAGA country in order to try to receive some uh, preferential treatment. And then, of course, two of those people that I just named are actually white women trying to cash in on a minority status that they don't actually possess. So was Thomas Sowell 100% correct about that or what? So all you end up doing when you create a preferred status group is you make people want to jock for that position. Furthermore, the second point that Sowell makes in his book is that these kind of preferential policies only tend to benefit the top groups of whoever is in the preferred class. So in other words, affirmative action tends to benefit black millionaires or people of black means uh, and black wealth rather than poor disenfranchised people who could actually use this. Often these preferred groups actually injure the least fortunate people in those non-preferred groups. So in other words, poor white people who are not in that preferred group are disproportionately affected by things like affirmative action. And the third point Sol makes is this, they reduce the incentive of both the preferred and non-preferred to perform at their best. So in other words, if you're just going to be preferred, you don't really work your best. You just say, hey, you know, I'm going to do mediocre here because I know that the people who are doing their best, they don't have my skin color, so I can get in just simply based upon that. And then the latter, they don't achieve their best because they know that it's, what's the point? Doesn't matter how good their scores are. Doesn't matter if you've spent your whole life dedicating yourself to the study of math or whatnot. And um, the fact that you're Asian just means that you're not going to get in, that somebody else is going to replace you. And so they, they obviously are not going to do their best because all of the incentive structure for doing your best has been taken away by these preferred group policies. And there's a fourth and final point that Thomas Sowell makes in his book. And it's this, that perpetuating the lie of race exacerbates the problem. It doesn't help it. Let me just mention a couple things so that you understand what I mean here and what Thomas Sowell means. Race is a folk taxonomy, which means it is a created naming system that is collo colloquial in nature. And that race is actually invented by human beings, but it's not actually a real category. Race actually was something that was created by racists. And it's important to understand that if we're going to fight racism, we can't use the very racist thing that created racism in order to do so. And we're living in a different world today than we were in the kind of civil rights era and even in the post-civil rights era, and it is okay to suggest that. Now, I know a lot of people are going to say, well, that's easy for you to say, white boy, which, by the way, is racist. It's not just easy for me to say, it's also true. Go look online anytime you wish. And look up articles for success. Not a single one of them will say that, well, you have to be white, by the way, if you're going to be successful. 
Um, no, they say things like this. Go work hard. Go to high school. Graduate. Go to college. Graduate. Find somebody that you love and marry that person. Have children with that person. Do that in that order. And regardless of your race, you will be able to succeed in life. Now, again, you may say to yourself, well, it's easy for you to say, although I'm white, a white person and not necessarily a person of means. Yeah, it is easy for me to say because it's also true. But if it makes you feel better inside somehow to hear it from a black man, here's John McWhorter telling you not only from his book about anti-racism and how it doesn't help people, especially black people, it just disenfranchises them and it just creates white guilt. But here's him talking about his Forbes article where he tells us in no uncertain terms that racism today is not an obstacle to success for black people in such a way that we should make such a big deal about it. Check it out. But I'm glad you bring up the Forbes piece because that, that comes up a lot. That was a while ago. There was a sexy headline that, you know, the, the, the people who do these magazines and newspapers, they give it the title. What I was saying there was that Barack Obama's election proved that racism isn't what it used to be. And I will openly yeah. own that what I meant then, because I mean it now, is that racism, although it's a bad thing, although yeah. we must tamp it down, is not as conclusive an obstacle to black success as we often say. You, That's what the you said. Our so it's not that racism doesn't exist. It's not that race isn't an issue. And it's not simply that, you know, there are experiences that people of other races will have that maybe I will never have as a white person. It's just that we make too much of those things. And it's okay for us to finally admit that and be honest about it. And if we're going to move ahead in this world and actually truly not blame other people for the ways in which we may be able to blame ourselves for our own personal decision making, if we're not going to, if we're not going to do that, then it's important that we understand that what the Supreme Court just did actually may be a step forward in ending kind of the racial rhetoric that has bogged us down for far too long. If we truly want to be post-racial as a society, then it's important that we quit using race as a determining factor in almost anything because it's not healthy. By the way, we should also be aiming for a post-Biden America because maybe you'll remember back during COVID when Biden instituted an eviction moratorium and said, hey, guys, you don't have to pay your rent and nobody will ever be able to evict you. Uh, well, the numbers are in and it has been devastating to landowners and landlords. Not only has it been devastating to them in terms of back rent, but also in terms of the penalties for for evicting people and disobeying that eviction moratorium. But thanks to the Supreme Court, that was overturned. But but I want to show you some of these numbers so that I so that we can get a bigger picture of why the Supreme Court is acting in the way that they are acting today. But according to the National Low Income Housing Coalition, by the end of December 2020, tenants owed landlords 30 to 70 billion in back rent and debt has risen even further since the start of 2021. A landlord that breaks the eviction moratorium stipulations may receive a fine of up to $100,000 a year in jail or both. If the violation results in a death, the penalty can reach up to $250,000. But an organization breaking the law may receive a fine up to $200,000 per violation. So a couple of points about this eviction moratorium and the fact that the Supreme Court had to rule in order to make sure that Biden wasn't doing this unconstitutional nonsense that was injuring people in this exorbitant way that I just illustrated. 
Um, it shows me something, that real compassion is not myopic. In other words, real compassion cannot just look at an individual who may be struggling with something and not take into account the ways in which other people are impacted by that individual. And so obviously I mean here the renter is struggling, and sure, maybe our hearts go out to them, but do our hearts not go out to the landlord, to the individual who's trying to invest in real estate and do better for his family? All of a sudden, we totally forget about them. This is the kind of tick for tat that the left plays so very often. And by the way, I hear it very often in Christian circles. We're told all the time that we need to make sure that we reach out to the marginalized and the disenfranchised, maybe even to the LGBTQ person who has been hurt by church and, and all of that. And, and so we focus our evangelistic efforts merely upon these people. Fine. But what about the much larger group of people out there who actually are maybe either remaining celibate and not giving in to their same-sex attractions, or maybe those who have been married and have had same-sex attraction and need fuel to fight? Where are our evangelistic efforts that try to help those people? All I mean is just simply this. If we're going to be compassionate, we may have to use a rubric that's a little bit bigger than Joe Biden's kind of divine fiats. And this is exactly what the Supreme Court is doing, is stepping in the way to move Biden to the side so that his definition of compassion is not the ruling operating principle of the day. By the way, forgive me if I uh, question whether or not what Biden is doing is actually compassionate, because what I actually believe he is doing is making the government bigger, because when businesses struggle and potentially need the help of the government to thrive, it places more power into their hands. And that's kind of the second point. When the government gets big, people get smaller. Joe Biden created a court that looks like an activist court simply because Joe Biden is the most executive order signing president in the history of presidents. By acting like a king, he created this court. And I don't even think they're ruling radically, or you can even call them an activist court. They are simply trying to get a man who is not the king of this country in line with the Constitution, and much to his consternation and much to the consternation of the left, because their totalitarian tendencies are constantly being exposed. And this eviction moratorium is just one of the many ways in which the totalitarians on the left want to try to move us to a place of central authority where the government gets bigger and bigger and bigger, rather than the government has a very limited place, and it is in protecting people, mostly through local police departments, fire departments, and that kind of thing. But much beyond that, the government can take a hike. Now, as our government has grown over the years, it has continually usurped power that doesn't belong to it. We just got done celebrating the 4th of July, where we looked at a radical government that wanted to tax its people without representation and take upon itself authority that, that it should have never had in the first place. And as our country has aged, our federal government has grown bigger and bigger and bigger. I think our founding fathers, for whatever it's worth, would look at our country today and they would be blown away by how much the state has given up its authority to the federal government. You know, of course, both are necessary as checks and balances. And if anything, I would just say this. 
The court is just acting as a check against the executive, which is exactly what they are supposed to do. And if in any way you might feel frustrated about politics in the present, then I just have to tell you, good. Because the way our government is constructed is actually from a very biblical principle that is important to understand. And it is the principle of original sin. And that is simply that each and every one of us are flawed and we have sins, we have blind spots, and we do things that we don't recognize. This is true of all of us. This is not just true of husbands, wives. This is also true of you, but it's also true of you husbands and not just your wives. It's true of all of us. And so our government was instituted with the idea, the principle of original sin in place. And so we created a system of government that almost lends itself to frustration. It doesn't have so much power that it can do whatever it wants. And that, again, was intentional because the founders of our country understood what kings, when they go radical, look like and what they can do to people. And more importantly, they understood themselves. They understood the scripture and they understood that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Even if that's not quoted entirely correct, it's still correct because power does corrupt. And the most absolute of power in the hands of any man can corrupt that individual. Thank God for Jesus. Suffice to say, it's important that our government have checks and balances like the Supreme Court to keep our government from becoming too powerful. And that's why I'm thankful for what the Supreme Court is doing in the present. And as we'll see in our final segment, there is a group of Christians, and specifically one Christian business person in, in particular, who took a stand and as a result is winning freedom of association, not just for Christians, but for people everywhere. So let's jump into Bible study with Democrats. Oh, God of pronouns. As I've covered on the show many, many times in the past, the left loves to destroy language and loves to redefine words and what might be considered a dystopian strategy of newspeak. Now, when they say freedom of speech, they mean something vitally different than we mean on the right. And when they say freedom of association, what they mean is the right to be forced to do what you are told to do. And that has come with a spate of activists, especially from the LGBTQ community, specifically targeting Christian businesses and trying to force those individuals to do what they want. And this is most recently the case in a Supreme Court ruling where a Christian web designer decided that she did not want to make a website and did not want to have to use her own terminology and her own wording to make a website for um, a gay couple. Lori Smith, the business owner of 303 Creative, is devoted to projects she cares about, including websites for animal shelters and veterans. She wanted to expand her creative endeavors to design websites for weddings. Yet because of Colorado's anti-discrimination law, she knew she wouldn't be allowed to decline creating sites for same-sex weddings. Because of her beliefs that marriage is between one man and one woman, this would have violated her conscience. Colorado's law is the same one at the heart of the Masterpiece Cake Shop case from 2018. In that ruling, the Supreme Court sided with Baker Jack Phillips, but issued a very narrow ruling in his favor that addressed only the hostility the government showed to him because of his faith and his decision to decline baking a cake for a same-sex wedding. Since the court didn't address the bigger question about Phillips' free speech rights as, creative, as a creative professional, he has faced subsequent legal challenges and persecution. In our polarized society, Smith has been and will continue to be portrayed as a bigot who simply doesn't want to deal with the LGBTQ community. 
That's unfortunate and false. Smith works with all people, and both sides in her case acknowledge that fact. What she doesn't want to be forced to do, however, is create websites and messages that go against her beliefs regardless of who requests them. Now, finally, we get from the mainstream media a honest broker because this actually doesn't have anything to do with the bigotry of Lori Smith. It has to do with her right of freedom of association. So she has the right to associate with whoever she wants to. This brings up two vitally important points. First of all, the the left consistently tries to use the law and pervert it for their agenda, whereas the right consistently has to defend themselves from those who want to violate the law. And the excesses of the LGBTQ community here are on full display. This violates this individual's right to associate. Let me try to frame this this way. When the right uses freedom of speech, what they mean is the right to dissent from whatever elitists say or whatever the mainstream narrative is, the right to be able to say what they want to say, even if it dissents with mainstream opinion. When liberals and when progressives say freedom of speech, what they mean is the right to indoctrinate whoever they want to and to shove their beliefs down whoever's throat they want to. And this is the case here. Again, this is one in a line of many cases where the LGBTQ community wants to try to force businesses to do their bidding. And again, this violates their, the right of a brand to associate with whoever it wants to associate with. If a cake baker only wanted to bake cakes for the Ku Klux Klan but not for black people, well, let's, which by the way is against the law, it violates civil rights, but let's just say they did that. The reality is, is no one would go to shop at that baker because of the way that they are associating, and you wouldn't have to try to sue them or anything else to, to force them to do what you want. But the totalitarian tendencies of the left are exactly this. You will do what we want, and we have the freedom to do it because freedom of speech and some such nonsense. Now, most importantly, kind of back to, uh, to the idea of the freedom of association and being having the freedom to associate your brand with whatever you want to associate it with. Part of the post-Christian amorality of our age that puts the kind of laws that are on the books in Colorado that disenfranchises Christians is part of the problem here. Because who is to say in a liberal society where morality doesn't govern us, consent governs us? Who is to say that you can't force a person to make an MAP cake, you know, if you're a cake baker. And of course, that would be minor attracted person's cake. So, you know, I'm a pedophile. Don't judge me because I'm a pedophile. Make my cake. You at that point are associating your brand with something that you believe is morally abhorrent. Now, it is not for you to dictate that morality. What does dictate that morality is something much bigger than all of us, bigger than our disagreements and bigger than our transcend or bigger than our non-transcendent ideas. We need a transcendent truth that transcends our personal beliefs and our personal opinions. This is where I as a Christian think I'm actually on way more solid ground than the secular atheist or the secular humanist or even the person in the LGBTQ community, whatever kind of faith that they may be claiming. Because I actually have a belief system that has a standard of morality. I don't make it up as I go along and then try to force other people to obey it. That's a recipe for disaster. And it is why, in kind of a microcosm anecdotal argument, why our society is so polarized today. Because we do not know 
where to find truth. As it says in Isaiah 59, truth has fallen in the street, and as a result of it, justice is nowhere to be found, and righteousness is nowhere to be found, morality is nowhere to be found, people are being disenfranchised and treated poorly, all because we do not know where to anchor our understanding of truth. Well, there is a book, and there is a guy that came to this earth claiming to represent that book named Jesus, that if you believe he's God, you might want to listen to, because he can give us the kind of standard of morality that will hold our society together while it unravels. And the reason I say that, even though you would say, well, that Bible's just written by men, or that Jesus is just some fairy tale genie that you created in your head, which of course no historian on the planet worth his salt would ever say something so foolish. The, the point of the matter is just simply this. You can argue with the morality of Jesus, but you cannot argue with the fact that Jesus instituted a standard of morality. And the one thing you can't argue with is that we need that standard in order to hold a society together. You may not like Christianity, but I defy you to go find another standard to put in its place that won't ultimately circle you right back to the things that Jesus was talking about when he was here on this earth. And if you finally find that your arbitrary morality doesn't supersede and isn't superior to Jesus's morality, then you might just want to accept the fact that Christian morality, biblical ethics, are actually very, very healthy for a society. And until we get back to it, we'll keep on at each other's throat, fighting over whose rights are the more important rights, when we should really understand that human rights are only grounded in religious rights. And if you believe that, I'd love to hear from you down in the comment section below. Thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and to go with God.